0: And welcome back. I'm here Woo! with Bo and Justin and the hi. Hello, <laughs> hi. If you hadn't noticed, we are starting the program off a bit differently. Primarily, it's not Justin welcoming you all back to the program. We're a little bit taken aback as well.
1: It's a passing of the torch. It's like the Passing Olympics. of the torch.
0: Do you yes. always pass a torch? Can it be a baton?
1: Mm. <laughs> I think the torch is a little bit more ceremonial. Right? So Robin is now carrying the torch. Maybe I'll carry the torch next time
0: you can carry the torch it's a it's a possible torch anyway we will tackle torches and other questions um, (laughs) (laughs) with our talk with camille today i'm so excited i love working with camille he's great and you guys will see why in just a minute stay tuned Did I sound like Justin then? I don't know.
2: Uh, I don't know. yeah. Kind of. Did I do a good job?
0: Okay. Yes. We're trying this out. We're trying this out. All right. Today we are talking with Camille, who is a fourth-year PhD candidate here at UIUC. She is originally from Con France. Um, France. Wow. You see, it just went from French and it went into English. It was terrible. Con France. Con uh, France. It sounds like conference. It does. It does. You were, yeah. <laughs> Did you just realize that? <laughs> wow. Yeah, I've never heard notice that. Oh, I'm, I'm,
1: I, you can I, make like just a. Just, it sounds it. like a dad joke to say like I have
0: a confrence <sighs> in <and> confrence. <laughs> oh my god! So
1: now that that's been settled.
0: <laughs> um, So she's originally from Confluence, but for the past 10 years, she's actually been living here in the States. However, she has only lived in the Midwest. She's a huge fan of the state of Kansas. That is her thing. She has also completed schooling in Ohio and now in Illinois. So in addition to all of the great things she does, which include the integration of pronunciation, teaching, and learning in the university curricula, willingness to communicate theory and classroom anxiety, mixed methods research for second language acquisition, and cognitive theories for in L2 research, she does other things because apparently she is. All, she's just superwoman, right? Mm-hmm. So in addition to all those wonderful slight things, she she is an avid horseback rider. She hikes and has now taken up ballroom dancing um, on Sundays, I believe, right? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. And then in addition to all that, she volunteers at a local elementary school and the dual immersion program in French she's the coolest so it works out
2: okay so let's go ahead and just dive right in i i heard all these amazing keywords like willingness to communicate and then also you do some stuff with like foreign language anxiety if i remember correctly
3: yeah I, it was kind of part of my proposal for my dissertation and then they kind of like got rid of it because it was too much but yeah oh, okay. it's definitely something i want to work with at some point uh,
2: very cool yeah so Let's just go ahead and dive in. So you've defended the proposal, right? Yeah. And you are officially ABD, if I remember, Chris. All but dead. All but dissertation. (laughs) (laughs) So can you just tell us a little bit about what your dissertation is exploring?
3: Yeah. So I'm doing a mixed methods longitudinal study. So I'm tracking novice learners of French I apparently cannot say L2 French anymore but I have to say L3 French because um most okay. people now take French as a third or other foreign language and it's not really their second language anymore cuz
0: okay. you know
3: people are being less and less monolinguals anyway so that's what um, we want. So. <laughs> yeah <laughs> I wonder
1: so, when it's going to be, like, the dawn of, like, the, the L7 specialist.
3: Right. The L7, like, what is
1: that going to have? Like, that, that's, yeah. that's what I'm going
0: to go into. This be- that sounds like a new Netflix series. The L7. L7. <laughs> I love that. Sorry. Love
3: that. But, yeah, so I've been tracking students from their first semester in French all the way through their fourth semester. So the fourth semester is this semester, actually. So this is my last semester of data collection. And pretty much I'm trying to see if the integration of explicit pronunciation lessons has any impact on their pronunciation. And if doing self-reflection also helps with the learning outcomes, if it helps with their learning process. And then I have this, what I call the awareness continuum hypothesis, which is- That my, sounds so cool. <laughs> which is uh, kind of why I got ripped like ripped apart at my my job talk but um and and in my yeah so people don't really like it because a lot of the terms that I use are overlapping and they don't agree with differentiation between the terms so okay so yeah it's fun
2: (laughs) okay so let's dive into the the longitudinal aspect right so yeah with, for everybody out there that 's listening, if you are in the stage if you're in the stage right before preparing your proposal and your dissertation you 're probably thinking like how can I collect data in such a way that it 's efficient for me to graduate on time and like analyze the data and do all these things?" Camille was very bold in doing a longitudinal study that took two years to collect data. Tell me about what was your motivation as far as why longitudinal, why not just one semester? What were some of the drawbacks to that, some of the difficulties that you had to overcome?
3: I started with novice learners the first semester and then I realized that there was absolutely no study out there and still no study to this date that tracked student across all four semesters across the foreign language requirement sequence basically so here i i I know it's different for different universities but here at illinois student most students have to take four semesters um Mm -hmm. fulfill their language requirements and so a lot of longitudinal study are either one semester and they call it longitudinal or it's two semesters or sometimes it's like two semesters but it overlaps so once a few students will take like French 2 and French 3, and then some of the students will take French 3 and French 4. Mm-hmm. So there's really nothing that tracks students from the beginning to the end, in French at least. Mm-hmm. And so that's what, yeah, I got really excited when I realized that there's literally nothing. <laughs> drawbacks. <laughs> <I> start- <laughs> so
2: excited, but Yeah.
3: <laughs> So I started with 60 participants, and I am down to seven. Oh, my that's gosh. Like, yeah, that's my drawback. It's it's pretty much the only drawback that I've found, honestly, but it is the, like, it's it, it sucks. <laughs> it's, like, it's is something you it, have to be aware of, for sure. Is it for
0: reasons of people not continuing with the French, or for?
3: Yeah, so a lot of people just didn't continue well you know like we start in 101 with eight or nine sections mm-hmm. all the way down to 104 with two sections so obviously there is some major right. dropping there and then a few students between one and 102 didn't want to participate anymore which it's their right so i can't really say anything about that i've pretty much tracked everybody who went from 102 to 104 mm-hmm. but so you can see that basically those seven students are the only one are pretty much the only ones who Took 101, 102, 103, 104, and who who because also you'll have a lot of students who jump in 102 who didn't take 101 before, or you'll okay. have who jump in 103 who haven't started 101, 102 just because they took a placement test, and I can't really include those students in right. my study because. They haven't followed the four semesters, so right. mm-hmm. um, yeah. I think I think overall there's about ten or fifteen students who followed the whole four semesters, but only have seven of them are my, were my participants from the beginning. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Wow. Yeah, <laughs>
0: that's a huge jump.
3: Yeah.
2: So your relationship with your participants, in a sense, has to be. Very like close and tight knit, right? Because you went from sixty to seven, and I'm sure that that I mean that has to have had a an effect. But it may have like changed the way that you perceive your study. It may have went from like completely mixed methods to maybe a case study. Is that what you're trying to look at right now, or what? What is? How did you negotiate the fact that you went from sixty to seven as far as your ultimate goals of your dissertation?
3: I think the last semester is definitely. It, I'm not sure yet. I haven't really um, gotten to that far into the details, but it'll definitely be a comparison for sure, mm-hmm. uh, from the beginning to the end. And then yeah, probably a case study on the seven students who kept going because they are the they are my only data that I can look at across. So I can look into like each semester, you know, like mm-hmm. the first, the second, the third, and then, yeah, going into the first semester, I kind of have to do case study, I think.
0: So I actually had a question, I think, that's specific to your research taking place at UIUC. Mm-hmm. So like you said, most schools have institute a four semester mandatory sequence of foreign language requirement. Um, However at UIUC once the students pass 102 they have the option of continuing into 103 which reclassifies intermediate French 1 or they can go into 133 which is kind of an accelerated version of intermediate and it's and that class is targeted at majors and minors and so people who have a true interest and they're not doing it just for the requirement. Did mm-hmm. you have any of your students go into 133, 134? Or are you just limiting in specifically forward language requirement students?
3: I only looked at foreign language requirement students. Just okay. because. Well, and actually, thankfully, I did that because 133 and 134 are going away. They're not right. back. So... I'm kind of glad I stuck to the 101. Oh, yeah.
1: Geez. Oh my god! Yeah. Talk about like an, yet uh, like another like if you had done that like another limitation. Right? It's like oh yeah. god, I don't leave it all for this class anymore. Like yeah. what am I going
3: to do? Mm-hmm. So I do. I do. It's usually a minority of students who go from 102 to 133. Usually students in 133 are placement students. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah. But I'm I didn't do it because it was going to be too much. And then I'm really glad I didn't do it because there, you go. there was no 133 anymore. So.
1: so like with your longitudinal study, what, what, what did your data collection look like?
3: So I did, so I do three sets, three rounds of data collection per semester. And I have them do a production. Actually, I have one, two, three. I have three stuff that they need to do. So they have six lessons, explicit pronunciation lessons every semester. And I've looked at three of them in particular. Before each lesson, they have to do a production test, and then they have the lesson, they have a perception test, and then they have another production test. And then the treatment group, on top of all that, has to complete a self-reflection ca- questionnaire before and after the lesson. Mm-hmm. And so that's three times per semester. Good gracious.
2: What did the, uh, what did the self-reflection include?
3: It was basically how they perceived their French speaking skills. So it was. I think I had about I have about ten questions. Eight of them are open ended, and two of them are Likert type scale okay. stuff. Like, how do you feel about your your production of like the vowels in French? Do you feel you have improved? Did you feel that you noticed anything specific about your pronunciation as a result of the lesson? Do you feel like you can hear? For example, I look at the u and the o. So questions like, do you feel you can hear better after the lesson? Do you feel like you can produce better after the lesson? Stuff like that.
1: And so, so how so how far along are you in the in the process? I mean, what's the um? I know I looked at I glanced through a presentation that Robin had sent us. Um, I think that you recently did. So do you want to talk about some of the results of what you found so far?
3: Yeah yeah. so basically, I found that there was that explicit pronunciation was beneficial all the way across. So I haven't analyzed the data for this semester because I'm not finished collecting it, but from one one through one to three, explicit pronunciation instruction is extremely beneficial for sure. Like, no mm-hmm. questions. However, self-reflection is only beneficial for the first two semesters of instruction where you really see a a massive difference between the students who did self-reflection and then students who did not, Mm -hmm. where like the students who did self-reflection really improved their pronunciation Mm -hmm. way more than the ones who didn't. In the third semester, however, the the control group totally caught up to the treatment group. And so the self-reflection, even though it was probably like it didn't hurt the student, but it wasn't as beneficial as the beginning of instruction.
0: Okay. Mm -hmm. So those students that did the self-reflection accelerated quicker than the control group, but they both kind of plateaued out at the same level. It just took the control group that much longer to
3: get there. Exactly. Exactly. Excellent.
0: And so with that, my question was kind of explicit instruction is I think Bowdoin has described it as basically a dirty word in uh, second language acquisition. <laughs> Those,
1: that, no, 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 that's not my words. That is how, that is the perception. Ah, the perception okay. is explicit. Perception. Yeah.
0: perception. Um, but explicit instruction as a, as a, as a dirty word is in essence kind of, so I'm, cause I'm fresh out of a methodology class and I'm thinking about expli- explicit instruction in the context of the communicative foreign language classroom. Mm-hmm. So how, for those maybe listeners who are kind of just getting on this wonderful road of, you know, <laughs> how does explicit instruction work in this communicative environment?
3: Well, so...
0: <laughs> Another dissertation maybe, I don't
3: know. <laughs> so, the problem, I think the communicative teaching methods or approaches are, are awesome for mm-hmm. obviously, obvious reason of like forcing students to communicate among themselves and be able to communicate with people outside you know when they go abroad mm-hmm. but it never focuses on pronunciation itself mm-hmm. and so students will come out of their foreign language requirements sequence and they won't be intelligible and they will have low linguistic accuracy which is kind of a problem because they do take those classes to eventually maybe go abroad, and maybe they'll be able to be confident in their communication and have the vocab and have the grammar. But if they can't be intelligible by native speakers, then what's the point? So I think think it's beneficial for students, and I think you can incorporate just little bits, you know, like you don't have to do a whole, I don't know. Integrating pronunciation instruction can be done many different ways, but I think that doing it explicitly So many studies have found that it can only be beneficial for intelligibility. And I think, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not incompatible. I don't see why it would be.
0: Right. It's just, I mean, because I'm thinking about certain theories I've read and certain, you know, instruction I've received in workshops and classes and stuff where they kind of emphasize just straight communication kind of, I think it's kind of like a class that Justin is um, teaching actually right now where it's just basically a conversation and they, they kind of pick it up implicitly. However, I think it also and I'm definitely not an authority or anything to say about this, but I think it also depends on the sound system of that said language of the target language. So, you know, for example, in French, we have lovely words. I think there's a new meme going on around right now and it's about the word was um, which means birds. Are you talking about like
2: up the wazoo?
0: <laughs> no, exactly, and that's what people think because they're like the wazoo, and I was like, no, it's wazoo and they're like, there's two <laughs> syllables, but there's like five vowels, you know, and like that's French and everything. Um, <clears throat> you wouldn't really see that in say German or Spanish or something that more like the ortho- orthography matches more so the mm-hmm. but I think also if you turn the if you if you kind of turn the situation around and you think about English as a second language classes, English is a terrible. Terrible language to learn. It is. I hate it. <laughs> Everyone on this program knows that because the pronunciation doesn't match the spelling. So mm-hmm. do you think that like this type of explicit instruction only plays a role in languages that are more difficult for students to kind of make that connection or do you think it has to, it should be across the board?
3: I feel like it should be across the board I mean like never really thought about it but that's a good like that's a really good question but I do think it can only help like I don't see Mm -hmm. how explicit pronunciation instruction can hurt somebody like as soon as you don't spend the whole like five days a week hour Mm -hmm. on it you know like unless you're an explicit pronunciation phonetics class that's different
0: Mm -hmm.
3: but and I feel like what you were Going back to also like a lot of programs will start focus focusing on phonetics at the 200 level and it's like well they have already have fossilized mistakes that could have been taken care of day one yeah <laughs> so I'm a huge advocate for teaching pronunciation right. in the classroom
0: if you ever need a case study for fossilized mistakes in French you know
3: pick yeah. me that's
0: me um, and all of my professors can attest to that and it's anyway that's another story but anyway
1: I was gonna talk about that for a second I don't know when exactly you know it's like when did when did uh when did explicit become a dirty word when did that happen and I know that communicative communicative language teaching has been around for a while and there's of course been other paradigm shifts like since then and um in terms of like teaching pedagogy but I get really, I hate these conversations that you you get talking with language teachers and it's, what percentage do you teach at? Well, I'm at a 75%. Well, I'm at an 80%. It's like, oh my God, seriously, do you document your time?
3: You know, (laughs) I mean,
1: is this really, is this really what SLA has become, right? This like like discussion of 75 versus 80%. 80% of what though? Sorry. Saying that, the
0: 80, like
1: eighty percent of the class is taught is in the target language, or ninety percent is in the target language. I mean, yeah, we should just be asking our asking these questions. Like, are the students learning? And as a language teacher, it's something like you can tell. You just have that you have a feeling, right? You have yeah. this understanding that you can tell that the students are making gains, that the students are able to have like original production. And if it works, it works. Yeah, you know, I get so. And I just get so tired of these conversations about seventy-five versus eighty well, percent. Well, what about eighty-five percent? It's like, oh my God, here we go again.
3: Yeah, you know, like. yeah. It's so interesting that you're saying that because I um, we have this center here called Click, so Center for Language Instruction and Coordination. Coordination mm-hmm. that had a Q and A with with Bill and Patton
0: um yeah.
3: A few weeks ago, and like some of his ideas are great for beginner learners, uh, mm-hmm. like beginner teachers. I mean, when you start teaching and you cannot understand what the communicative language teaching is, but he was saying that never ever you, f- you should feel ashamed for speaking English in your classroom. Yeah, and I was like, Amen, because like you know all the time you like, you should be a hundred percent in the target language in your classroom, blah blah. blah. And I'm like, Well, yeah, but no. Because if translation can help you move along the classroom instead of being stuck for 15 minutes on the word that you can't TPRS with or you can't do anything about it, you know, and your students are like, what? <laughs> I don't know, think I I you should never. <laughs> yeah, you should never feel ashamed about using English in your classroom. And I was like, if Bill, if Bill Van Frickin Patton says that, <laughs> then I'm going to no. take it. The and antar- there you go.
2: <laughs> Bill Van Patten is kind of like a brand these days. I mean, he's always it been is. Oh. He's a of SLA. Jesus. I mean, this is your one Bill Van Patten. You get one plug since you are like a brand. You're like... You and know. I
0: feel like also he kind of deserves the one because he kind of helped get this podcast going. You know, he is the inspiration
1: the, for this podcast. He is the inspiration for the podcast. I mean... He's the inspiration for
2: a really lot of things. I'm the, the inspiration
0: world. for the podcast. I mean, just
2: <laughs> just that, but, the, but he gave us the name.
0: Lovely. the name. The name yeah.
2: comes
1: from Bill Van Patten. It was from mm-hmm. a conversation with, between myself, Justin, and Bill Van Patten in Justin's car down (laughs) to the Birmingham airport to Tuscaloosa talking about doing a podcast.
0: That's awesome.
1: Yeah. um, I always
2: wonder if he knows about our podcasts. Uh, We never told him. (laughs) him. Um, Yeah. uh,
0: Well, I'll put it as a tag for this episode, like hashtag Bill Van Patten, and then it'll probably pop up on his Google radar or something. Yeah, Yeah, you should
3: maybe
1: but like you're, that's just that that whole discussion it's like at a certain point you know I'm not trying to draw a distinction between L1 and L2 but mm-hmm. I mean at a certain point is as an L1 as a as an L1 speaker of English you know you acquire it you acquire it implicitly and then starting at some point like third third fourth fifth grade or whatever like it is I think like by third grade you're already having like English classes where you're learning mm-hmm. the mechanics right like you're right. learning the you know explicitly. It's, it's like the the curtain is pulled and it's not just that language isn't something natural it actually has you know and you learn the ridiculous rules in English that have really no rhyme or reason like I before E except after C but only sometimes I mean that's more spelling stuff but I mean but that's also so
0: nonetheless.
1: just you like you learn all those rules behind it and I mean you have to learn those you have to learn those explicitly and then you have to actually use them. And so I don't understand why we've gotten to this point of explicit as a dirty word.
2: Okay, so you mentioned a con- you mentioned some theory and your dissertation is really it's, it's serving two purposes, right? It's gonna get you a PhD, but it's also going to establish you I mean obviously it's gonna get you a PhD and you're gonna become <laughs> Dr. coming in. But you are also establishing a theory. Can you explore that just a little bit more as far as you call it the continuum theory if I'm if I'm not mistaken.
3: The awareness continuum.
2: Oh, the awareness continuum. Okay, so can you tell us just a little bit about (laughs) the awareness continuum?
3: Yeah, so basically I've been taking bits and pieces from, like, previous research. um, Mainly Schmidt's research on Mm -hmm. the noticing hypothesis, where he kind of overlaps attention and noticing and what is the precursor for what um so basically which is the chicken and which is the egg right okay and so i've kind of taken it apart and then deconstructed it so that it doesn't overlap and then so basically i i put awareness on a continuum right so it's it happens at some point in relationship with other things going on in the brain when students learn pronunciation. So I have four components to that continuum. I have attention, which is basically right, when you pay attention. Wherever wherever attention goes, the brain follows, right? Yeah. Um, okay. it's, it's just it's just part of everybody's system. Like right? mm-hmm. when you're five minutes on your phone and then you're distracted, you don't pay attention when you're driving, for example, or or anything. It's just really something that everybody has. And then I have noticing, which is kind of part of the same system. And that's where people disagree with me. But I see it noticing as a completely different part as attention. So to me, you can pay attention to something without really noticing it. Mm. And then you can pay attention to something, whether it's in grammar or pronunciation, but not really clicking that it's there. You know, you can see it, but not really notice how to use it or notice that it's yeah that it's there so that's my.
0: so for that would it be kind of the distinction you make between attention and noticing is that where students commit systematic errors so for example when i say oeuvre, i will i know how to pronounce it but then i i don't think i pay attention enough or i don't notice it enough so when i'm using it in in class my lovely professors are like what did you say and I say I don't know but you know it's not is that in the area where those systematic where our students will say j instead of je you
3: yeah know? I think okay. so I okay. really okay. do think so mm-hmm. because and it kind of actually goes to the two other components which is awareness so once you're aware like you're aware of how you say the word of right so yeah, I and, say it right. Okay. but and, and you can't maybe you don't pay attention but you you've noticed it and mm-hmm. you're aware of it but yeah maybe you don't pay attention right away when you produce it so that's something and then the fourth the fourth component is understanding so mm-hmm. if you understand the rules if you're able to generate your own rules and test those rules, then you've understood what is going on. So I Mm -hmm. think those four components, to me, are in relationship with each other. Right. Right. It makes learning.
0: And this process is always, like, sequential. Like, that's the order in which it happens?
3: To me, I think that when you have attention, and then instruction, and noticing Mm -hmm. all Mm -hmm. of this combined, that is what creates awareness and understanding. And mm-hmm. so basically attention and noticing are working together mm-hmm. to make awareness and understanding. Mm-hmm. And so if you don't have attention, then you don't, you're, you're going to miss other components mm-hmm. So you can have, for example, notice noticing, and that may May make you become aware, but you won't necessarily understand.
0: With the example I gave you, I've explicitly told my students, and I mean again, they're in the elementary level, part one or part two. But yeah. there's a difference between je and j because that that the a pronunciation of the e, orthographic e in French, comes from mostly people who have taken Spanish, right. <laughs> and so they'll keep saying j. But actually, when you hear j, like if Justin hears j, he thinks that I have rather than I, yeah. which you know, it's a minimal pair, and they're aware of it, but yeah. they, they don't understand it fully, so, and that's why they keep committing this right. systematic error of saying j'ai fait, and there's, like, like j'ai fait mes devoirs, and I was like, oh, tu as fait des devoirs? Like, no, je fais, you know, like, j'ai fait, it's like, oh. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
3: and I think, yeah, and see, like, I feel like if, I think this is gonna be the same up until that point where they reach, and they, they get, like, the attention, and they're noticing working together, uh-huh. so if they, when they produce it, they notice what they're saying, and they they pay attention to what they're saying. Mm-hmm. Then that you know they've already they're already aware of it. But maybe mm-hmm. having the attention and the noticing working together will make them understand, and right. then it will lead to being correct right. and not wrong.
1: So I think that, so. So we will we will take a break, and when we come back, we're going to get into Kavi's uh, experience as a graduate student, and especially we want to hear about when we when you talked about your continuum and most recent uh, presentation, and mm-hmm. how you dealt with some was sniping was the word that was used some uh, or some, some some hard maybe just like maybe not sniping maybe some hard hitting questions uh, that yeah. uh, some people that's definitely something that I think would be beneficial for me and as well as others to hear. So. We will be right back after
0: this. Okay, cool.
1: Welcome back. We've been having an awesome conversation with Camille about her research and it brings us to the last now to the last section of our podcast, which is called Lessons Learned. So, Camille, basically the question, as you probably know, is if you could look back on your career as a graduate student and think about some experiences that you've had, some lessons that you've learned that you could go back and tell yourself that would make the process easier, whether that is to do with research or to do with presentations or anything like that, what would that be?
3: Definitely learn how to manage your time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: She said that without hesitation. That was just like the first thing.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I hesitated hesitated between that and learn how to say no. Oh, Uh, nice. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah.
1: That's definitely. So, learn how to manage your time. I know. I have. I had someone actually tell me. When I first started, I think it was just, I think it was when I I started undergrad, um, it was like an academic advisor or something told me that college is all about time management. It's not, it's not necessarily about learning things. It's about time management. So what are some, what is the lesson that you learned in regards to learn how to manage your time? Can you give us some detail about that?
3: I, uh, I write down everything. Mm-hmm. That, I, that I do and I plan on doing because if I don't I'm going to forget about them and then it's <laughs> 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 uh, down if I have to write to read a couple articles I'll write down that I have to read two articles and what articles they are and mm-hmm. just to keep reminding myself of doing this stuff um, mm-hmm. if I have to write an article then I have to like break it down into small pieces and, ha- and set myself deadlines I've noticed this semester specifically, I can't work without deadlines. There's just nothing happening. Mm-hmm. And if I sit down and I have deadlines, then I'm then I'm fine. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah, and I think that's a huge part of time management if you don't set yourself some deadlines and make it into smaller chunks instead of just, like, writing down, hey, I have, like, this due by this date. Mm-hmm. I can't do that. I have to have it break down.
0: And, like... And I think that makes sense, and it's, it's kind of at the same time, though, because a lot of our listeners will probably be like, well, that's, like, common sense, right, then what you have yeah. to do, blah, 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 but you know that's what, in grad school it's yeah. not common sense. You'd yeah. like, I have to write down, I have, yeah, and the boys will know, I have about three calendars that I have to coordinate, and so I have it to, it's
2: actually it. kind of miraculous
0: how,
2: <laughs> how that system works out. <laughs> I'm, and so, I'm jealous.
0: <laughs> jealous is not, not how to be about this, Um, unfortunately, but I have to, because otherwise I will forget, because I know, like, you have weekly, you know, like, for example, in the classes I'm taking right now, Weekly, you have to turn in these answers by noon on Sunday, mm. and it's a by. It's week eight now. I still have to write it down, otherwise, I just won't do it yeah. because I have eighty million other things going on. Because outside of work, outside of your school work, outside of teaching, you also have things you're doing around the department. So, for example, Camille is our graduate student association president. So she has the glorious burden, or maybe just the burden, of you know putting together things for a group of students and coordinating schedules and and everything, um, so honestly, it's it's not common sense at this uh, yeah. at this stage, I think. But time management has been such a it's it's very thematic among I think a lot of our interviews, right? And um, mm-hmm. and that actually kind of has me thinking. So we talked to Trisha, who you know is very mm-hmm. she works and she gets things done way in advance and then we actually just interviewed Sal from UT Austin and he's the opposite he's like I can only do work when it's like the day before or something like that and I just work and it, that's when I'm most productive so when you said and that's why I was I was struck by what you said I can't work without a deadline so when you give yourself a deadline to do something do you you do you organize in like a timely fashion or do you kind of give yourself like a pseudo time, um, deadline that I want to get it done by Wednesday to turn in on Friday.
3: Yeah, like I'll, I'll write myself a deadline and I'll try to have it done before my deadline. No matter mm-hmm. what. It usually works out because I manage to organize myself pretty well. Mm-hmm. But for example, I, I've been reworking my article and I haven't done anything yet. <laughs> I've just started pretty much little bits the past week and I finally wrote down I worked backwards and finally wrote down deadlines for me to do things and now I'm like I feel way more productive mm-hmm. than if I don't have deadlines and I work on it kind of like randomly at least I can check it out check it off my little schedule thing you know mm-hmm. I'm like oh yeah I did this good for me and yeah check and it out okay. yeah exactly Absolutely.
1: and so this thing of learn to say no <laughs> yeah. um, so how do you so how do, how do you say no
3: <laughs> I just say flat out no. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I can't do it.
0: Right. But you're also speaking, I think, from my perspective, of a fourth year, right? So you yeah. um, and then you've got you've been through another master's program and you've been through it all. And and I think I find that that's actually one of the first pieces of advice I received when I got here between I think you've told me a couple times and also Jula, right? Mm-hmm. Who we've also had on the program. It's like learn how to say no.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But it's it's honestly. I think, and I'm like reflecting back on my first year at Alabama when I started out my master's, and it is impossible to say no as like a first year or second year. How would you basically describe when to say no, like for those people who are just being pulled in like left, right, up, down, all directions? Like, how do you? I mean, by fourth year, as Justin said, all but dead you've had it, you're done, you yeah. don't have any energy. But what, for those people who do have energy and they're ambitious and they want to do everything in the world, what would you tell them?
3: I selfishly only say yes to things that are going to benefit me. Okay. Uh, because I'm at this point now, and I think it should be what you're taught in your first year of PhD, where you're in a path where you have a deadline that is humongous, it's your PhD defense, Mm -hmm. and you don't have time for BS. And so, if it's not (laughs) going to be, (laughs) right, I mean, I feel like if it's not going to benefit my dissertation, or my career, I'm not doing it.
0: And even though it comes like, you know, as you said, you're like selfishly, it is selfish, but in a sense, it's also prioritizing your, exactly, yourself, which is what you should do, and we forget that especially a lot, I was just talking to somebody, and they said, you know, European graduate school is nothing like here, because here, graduate school becomes your life, and it's your identity, whereas, like, I think in graduate school in Europe, for the most part, you kind of, it's something you can leave, and you can go have a drink, and not stress about for a while, I mean, maybe you guys have the, uh, the superpower I am incapable of having, or I cannot stop thinking about what I have to do, right? But I think that's actually a really healthy mentality, and it comes and it by way of being selfish, and how it can benefit work, and then also how it can benefit your, your mentality, I guess, would be yeah. the word for it. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm very well, good. I
3: mean, again, like, if it's something that you know, is going to add stress to your already very stressful life, Mm-hmm. I'd rather say no and maybe have the person who asked me be mad at me for a while than being stressed out for 6 months because I know I have to do that on top of that on top of that on top of that like I don't really see the point, point. and I'm I'm a very selfish person, so I'm like whatever. But I don't see the point if it's not gonna be like. And I mean, like, and I don't mean benefit myself in a in a bad way. I mean, like, mm-hmm. for so for example, when I took up volunteering at the dual immersion program, mm-hmm. it benefits me a lot. But like, it benefits my my resume for sure. But it right. benefits the kids for sure. It helps right. the teacher a whole lot. And, like, it teaches me a whole different perspective on teaching French. Because right. Teaching French to 20, 18 years old and teaching French to 13, 5 years old. <laughs> that's a whole different story. <laughs> and well, it depends, though. Have you met my students? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, like, I feel blessed to teach university students compared mm-hmm. to teeny tiny people.
1: but I mean let's be honest though kids like young kids especially like toddlers speaking a foreign language is absolutely the most like the cutest thing in the world oh yeah so with this lessons learned, you mentioned earlier that you were at a you were at a presentation and you got some kind of difficult questions. Um, I think that's something that would really benefit us to talk about. Um, how did you, in as much in as much detail as you want to give, uh, what was that like being put on the spot publicly and having to kind of defend defend your opinions and defend your research?
3: It definitely took me by surprise because I've I have prepared myself so many times to be. Confronted to what we call snipers con- <laughs> at conferences, uh-huh. but not at this type of presentation. So it definitely took me off guard, and I'm a pretty calm person unless you really push my buttons. So being taken off guard, I was able to like keep calm, and I think that is what did the trick. And then knowing what you're talking about, because most likely to my understanding is that people who are snipers either are threatened or don't necessarily know what they're talking about. And so being able to really prove your point by calmly explaining the backstory to your research. The case was that the person, the question was kind of like what I mentioned before, the difference between atten- attention and noticing and how i was able to find the results that i found and what was my coding procedure so that person mm-hmm. put into question the way i coded for for the responses in my, in my, my participants responses and i think like by calmly explaining every step of the of the thing mm-hmm. calm calm that person down if i <laughs>
0: bringing
3: it down <laughs> yeah, no, yeah right. like That's really perfect. bringing it down like break, break and breaking it down you know step, uh-huh. by step this is this is why i did this and how i did it and mm-hmm. this is the results i found from doing mm-hmm. all that right and i feel like it's really very similar to responding to reviewers comment on an article ah uh, mm-hmm. reviewer
0: where, too yeah you
3: can't like, <laughs> you can't say hey what the heck are you saying you're obviously stupid." Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't say that to reviewers, you know? So you have to be able to break it down and step by step explaining your process so that they understand. And I feel like when you have a sniper in the room, it's exactly what you should do. Right.
0: And I think it was really interesting when I hearing you talk about how you handled and, and essentially dismantle the sniper. Yeah. Right? yeah. You the fir- and you do something that I just realized very meta right now, that I realize that I do in class when I teach is when I have a student who doesn't understand something there's a lot of things that when you've been working with a language or working with material for a long time, some things are just so automatic, right? Mm -hmm. And then you're teaching someone who has never had contact with this concept, you know? And so, for example, I think the first time I taught the difference between two different past tenses in French, it was really hard for me to kind of understand why I was getting so many obstacles, why I was getting so many questions. And so what I had learned to do was I had to take a step back and figure out, like you said, you have to figure out the the motive for the question like where is this person coming from mm-hmm. and you know and I'm not sure if you knew that the person asking you the questions had a shared background maybe there was some you know envy in what you were doing because it, it's I mean you're getting a trademarked theory out of this come on now like who wouldn't be envious but it's important to consider where their motives lie we're mm-hmm. asking you the question and I think you're absolutely right and you have to break it down simply and it's it's a that's kind of a motto that I've, I've, I've always kept with me when working with what I do, especially when I worked with more theoretical things, is if you are able to explain something in the simplest terms, that's yeah. when you really know it. Yeah, and, and that's how you can also communicate to the public, to the non-linguistic people, to the non-slate people, what you do. And that's why I, I particularly, just saying, I particularly like your presentations because you put into terms that I understand yeah. not being an SLA specialist, unlike Justin and Bowden, And so, <laughs> I mean, you more so than I anyway, right? So when you were dealing, with like the sniper in the room was there like tension like do you go to humor when there's tension in the question or did you even feel it or were you just too focused on kind of answering?
3: I just really wanted to get my point across so Mm -hmm. I I just kind of like slowly and calmly explained and I'm not a person who didn't I can be very emotional but in that kind of circumstances like I'm not Mm -hmm. But I don't get angry either because if you, like, I feel like the huge thing is don't show your weaknesses. So Mm -hmm. if you feel like you're going to get emotional, take a deep breath. Because, you know, if you're at this presentation, it means that you got accepted into it and you know your stuff. Right. So if you have somebody who is stupid enough to be asking you a mean question and pushing you down, knowing that you are a PhD student, they're obviously not worth your time and so you can just break it down and don't right. Yeah.
0: And I think it's really key that you that you said that because you know we always say there are no stupid questions. But in fact mm-hmm. there are. There are stupid yeah. questions. Those are the questions that are rooted in just no curiosity for knowledge, but rather yeah. motivated in negative attitude. Questions yeah. that are meant to embarrass you or poke holes, or to snipe you—is that—is yeah. that how you say it? Right? Those yeah. are the stupid questions.
1: Yeah. And I think you know some of those questions could be explained by you know like Robin was saying, know the intent of to know the intent of the person is important because mm. the question may be rooted in some type of legitimate interest, right? It could be it could be sniping. Right. It could be someone just has like an axe to grind. Someone just wants to know that like, oh, well, I know. Did you think of so-and-so's theory? Well, because that's what I know. It's like, you know, okay, Mm -hmm. thank you. Like, congratulations. You read a book, right? (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, but also it may be like, you know, for example, for like for me, I'm very, very interested in how research projects are put together and the methodologies that are used. And so that would have been something that I would have asked when you're actually going through the coding process, because I'm interested in how people and how people, Mm -hmm. especially in qualitative research, like how they code. And Mm -hmm. a lot of times people just take for granted that I do qualitative research, I do coding, and I don't have to give any. You know, I don't have to give any information about that. But to me, it's something that's very valuable and very important. The person may have, you know, may have some type of interest. It might not necessarily be yeah. sniping. But I think it's like you said, to that's very important to, you know, take a breath, think about what you're going to say, mm-hmm. and respond calmly and keep calm and break it down.
3: Yeah, yeah, and I think you know?
0: you're Ooh, I kind like yeah. that. Yeah. Like <laughs> you make one of those posters right yeah
1: and, um, guys that about wraps us up thank you so much to camille for agreeing to be on our episode today for season three before we go if you like what we do please follow us on facebook at gradlings podcast instagram at gradling podcast and twitter at gradlings podcast and of course feel free to message if you're interested in being on the show and to comment about something if you have any questions also thank you so much to dr doug Lightfoot, who's the chair of the department of Modern languages and classics here at the university of alabama as well as Dr. Aaron O'Rourke, who is our faculty advisor. And also a special thank you to CBDB for our awesome new music for Season 3. That's all from the Gradlings, and we will see
0: you guys next time. It's great. It's cool,